0: Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 a.m., streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. And you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you can also check out those previous episodes that you have missed wherever you get your podcast. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or Google Play, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Really easy. Both are the same thing. At Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Slump family. As always, we are aware that we have but an hour, and it's going to go by very, very quickly. So we're just going to jump right in uh, tonight's conversation. Well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get rid of this this music, which is kind of lulling me to lulling me to sleep. So we're just going to get rid of that, and we are going to bring in our in-studio guest for uh, tonight, and that is. Kalia Abiyadi, and she is the Director of Programs at the Pillars Fund, and before I tell you about it, I'm just going to say assalamu
1: alaikum. Salam. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. It's a pleasure to uh, have you here, and um, just to tell folks a little bit about you, so as the Director of Programs at the Pillars Fund, uh, you oversee the Community Infrastructure Fund, manage Grantee Relationships, and the annual grant cycle, which I'm just going to give away something right now that you're in the middle of the annual grant cycle right now we are we okay. are <laughs> now you also provide leadership for emerging pillars initiatives and this is uh, an important thing and and throughout the conversation we'll get into some of that as well inshallah uh, but prior to joining pillars uh, you spent four years I'm talking to her but I'm talking to you all okay all right so Kalia spent four years working with community-based groups faith communities and national coalitions to challenge organized anti-immigrant and anti-muslim movements and their policies Uh, She's an experienced trainer and convener on issues related to communications and racial justice. Right? Important stuff. This is kind of like a big bulk of what we deal with on Radio Islam, you know, quite often. So, um, but Kalia has more than 15 years of journalism experience, has taught in high school students uh, in rural southwest Virginia with the Upward Bound program. That's a program near and dear to my heart. Her analysis has been cited in the Washington Post, The Nation, NPR. Public Radio International, In These Times, and USA Today, among other outlets. Clea uh, holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Florida and studied race and social policy at Virginia Tech. She lives with her husband and their children in the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois.
1: Chicago. That's
0: right. <laughs> and so, once again, Assalamualaikum.
1: <laughs> Walaikum, son. So,
0: um,. I'll just throw it out there for those who missed it uh, uh you and i had the uh opportunity to participate at the recent clf community life forward uh conference in uh atlanta well right outside of atlanta might as well say atlanta. and uh one of the things that i was able to come away with from the uh the, the conversation um that you directed you're talking about um grants right in, in general and, and um uh just giving information about the Pillars Fund and what you do and, 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 and all of that good stuff, right? Right. So, but before we jump into all that, I want to first start out with a bit of how your, your history, right, uh, 15 years of, of journalism experience, that's a long time, right? That's a bit of a, di- kind of a, you kind of took a left, right? <laughs> or a right, or you do want to look at it, uh, to, to find yourself now and uh, as a position uh, as director of programs. How did that come about and how does that experience relate to where you are now?
1: For sure, so um, I started out my career as a journalist right around the time of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that I was just gonna go and be a journalist and like change the, wor- the world mm-hmm. through, uh, my journal- through my journalism and I was an editor. So sp- specifically, mm-hmm. and you know, like shaping stories and helping other reporters shape those stories. And of course, this was a time of some just, you know, amazing changes in this country, Mm -hmm. um, that it's really hard to believe that we, you know, that all of that actually happened and that I was in this space. So not only did we have sort of what was happening on the social landscape going on with, you know, surveillance um, issues starting to come to the fore, wars going on in different countries. um, We also had a big change in journalism happening. I was working at a local newspaper and that Local newspaper newsroom doesn't even exist anymore, right? Newspapers have changed so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, our website uh, for the newspaper consisted of like a PDF of the front page, right? It was no, <laughs> it was nothing like what we know today, yeah. um, to be newspaper journalism. So I don't think it's actually. It seems like sort of a leap, but because I went into journalism with this idea that it was really important to have this voice and different voices at the table or around the newsroom, um, I really think of my role at the Pillars Fund and in all of my work really similarly, that you've gotta bring different voices to the table. There needs to be different perspectives um, in rooms where decisions are being made. And we know that journalism and media have a really, really big impact on the way people think about things, the way people make their own decisions. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch, but um, definitely a different life, a different lifetime yeah. even.
0: When I think about uh, not just not just how the society has changed since 9-11 and how the narrative around Muslims has, and I don't want to make that the singular defining uh, element or experience for Muslims, right? Because right. Uh, if you look at like the work of, um, of, of the late uh, Professor Jack Shaheen, you know, with the right. uh, real bad Arabs, uh, you can see that that Muslims have been deliberately portrayed in a negative light uh, throughout. As far as Hollywood is concerned, uh, so th- you know that that's bled over into into print journalism as well.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: but with this idea of us being in a democratic society, do you feel like the experience of or the the desire? This kind of editor's framework of, of, of crafting the narrative, that, in this position now, that is also gives you an opportunity to uh, enable people to have voices in in terms of um, uh, the, the the efforts or the, the the projects that people are trying to put out into the public space? That you, you, you approach it similarly and, and you know, does that make sense?
1: Definitely, so one thing we were taught in journalism school way back when, right? You hear this word, objectivity, objectivity. Mm-hmm. And then I had a professor in my senior year who was like, there really is no such thing as objectivity, right? Everybody brings their experiences, their lives into the newsroom or into the boardroom or whatever room that they're entering. Mm-hmm. So you need to be fair and you need to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was a really, really big shift for me, moving just in terms of mindset, saying, okay, there is no such such thing as objectivity. And if we're being honest, what's been put out into the world as objective is a white male voice. Right. And everything else is sort of in the margins or in another space. So having being given that agency as a young journalist to say no, you bring your voice into that room mm-hmm. and you make decisions and tell the truth from your perspective. And you know Tony Morrison and others have talked a lot about this, but I really do see this, you know, in a very similar way now when I show up as a director of programs at Pillars Fund we are going to be fair, we're going to, we want to build community, mm. but I'm coming from a perspective, right? I'm coming, I'm coming with my life experiences, just as everyone else right. um, who's part of that process is. Mm.
0: So. There, there seems to be a, uh, there, an expectation when you're a person of color, whether you're African American, whether you are South Asian, whatever you are, if, as a non-white person, um, when you come into the room, there's an expectation that you leave behind who you are in search of or uh, in, in, in an attempt to be objective, which really is to see things through a, a white male lens. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are some of the stories? So you said, um, I'm sorry, you didn't say, but uh, you studied, um, what was this, racial? Race
1: and social policy. Race and social policy. Mm-hmm.
0: So were most of the stories that you did, were they, were they centered around? Um, race.
1: So one of my favorite um, pieces that I wrote was an interview with Chuck D and it was, really? yeah, it was around, he came to town uh, to do some events around the Martin Luther King holiday. Yeah. And, you know, he has that song, uh, or by the time I get to Arizona. and <laughs> So we were talking a lot about the legacy of Dr. King and how people use his stories and his speeches, um, to really, you know, Share this, you know, this really beautiful story of this country where we're all, you know, equal, and we just have these great dreams and hopes for our children, but really didn't get into the heart of what Dr. King was talking about, which was much more radical. Mm-hmm. And so, being able to early in my career have a conversation with Chuck D of all people, right, yeah. about that, uh, was just so just instructional for the rest of my, you know, for the rest of my career, mm-hmm. and I've never forgotten that. And I also um, had had a little bit of a battle with my editor over some issues that were like included and not included in the piece so it was also this lesson in negotiation right around race when you're dealing with people in power and i was again i was 22 23 maybe Mm -hmm. and wanting to insert this into a you know a friendly but relatively conservative area um, you know, really pushing and pushing and saying, "No, this is why this matters. It's important that other people hear this story." And I think one thing that we hear a lot for you know journalists of color or people of color who are doing work um, in the nonprofit landscape is just about, like you said, being able to like bring your voice in and not apologizing for it, but also speaking to the audience that you want to speak to. Mm-hmm. There's always this assumption that we have to speak to this mainstream audience or this. Broader audience. And that may be true, but first and foremost, I want to be authentic to my people. Right. right. So if it doesn't resonate with the people closest to me, then it doesn't really matter what the rest of the main, quote unquote, mainstream thinks because it's not real and authentic and relatable. And I think there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with speaking to your own audience first. And as we've seen with examples, um, and I'm going a little bit on a tangent, but I think, you know, the show Insecure um, on HBO or a few other shows that have come up where people have been unapologetic about, no, this is my audience first. Everyone else (laughs) comes along and they're like, actually, this is really great. Like, I didn't know these things. And so we're missing opportunities when we don't speak to our people first.
0: You know, and it's funny uh, uh, to think about Issa Rae. Um, who at I can't remember what 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 uh, awards it was. I just remember that she just basically said, "I'm I'm rooting for everybody black." Now, <clears throat> that would seem like a radical statement, and and some folks did take it as a radical statement. They took it as, "What how how, how can you say that without?" And and this kind of leads into this other this idea of privilege that we talk about, uh, and the word is lost on. I think it's lost on a lot of people. Do you think that those who have privilege say the editor that that you that you had to negotiate with that they were aware that they that they set the norm, that they are the norm that all the things that um that validate them are things that they don't even have to think about. So to hear a different idea is it's just you know, it's it's crazy. You know, they have to stop and like, okay, we need to talk about this. Do you think was was your editor aware of it at that time?
1: I don't think so, right? I think he was somebody who didn't have any like ill intent. He just yeah. was like, this is objective journalism, right? This is objective. This is objective, and I was like, objective to whom? It's right. not objective to me, right. right? And so I think that was. Definitely. You know, I think a lot of the times we don't even realize, um, and we all have to be mindful. mind, we all carry different privileges and different situations, and that changes, you know, from room to room, of course. But um, I, I definitely think half the battle is just being aware of those things, even when we aren't intentionally, you know, marginalizing people's voices.
0: Well, I, I like the fact um, that you said that there was no ill intent, right? And I think sometimes we if we feel like we're left out of the conversation um or our point of view is not being addressed addressed or considered we feel that there is that there is ill intent that somebody is really just out to get me when we are you know we are a uh, a sum we're the sum of our experiences so if you're not trained to see blue or to notice you know certain things you just you're not going to notice them. But in, in saying that, are those are there, are those conversations to um, to open people's eyes up to consider realities beyond their own? Uh, how how challenging are those conversations?
1: I mean, uh, sometimes I want to bang my head up against <laughs> the wall <laughs> if I'm being honest. So sometimes, yes, I get that. No ill intent. And that's fine but once it's brought to your attention right just to say no that's not true that doesn't exist right. your experiences don't matter that's where it's really difficult so I think when we're having these conversations um, about police shootings for example or the school like the inequity in schools in Chicago or about Islamophobia or all of these things are in the news all the time and it's like how many different ways do we need to explain that the same thing is happening for you to believe us? And sometimes it's like now I don't even care if you believe me. Just act on these issues, right? Like right. you don't have to see it. Just trust the voices who are most directly impacted. And I think that's this is where, you know, kind of bringing it back to the Muslim community in our in our like work at the Pillars Fund, we're one of only a handful of organizations that explicitly funds American Muslim nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm and we've been talking to other you know colleagues in philanthropy for years this is a you know these are some of the issues we're dealing with they're not all you know in response to discrimination and surveillance and all of that but some of them are and we've been com- you know we've been bringing this up and doing this mostly on our own for years now and everyone says they want to work with Muslims they see the plight you know they they really get it and then it's like okay but how do we turn that empathy into action now. We all have these resources to bring to the table. And so I was actually learning from the president of the, um, of PolicyLink, an organization um, based in the Bay Area with staff kind of across the country. And he was saying, you know, we've explained all of these issues to you like 50 different ways. We've brought reports, we've brought testimonials, we've done it in every way you just don't want to listen, right? <laughs> so, because there's nothing else that we can do or say. And right. so you have to make that decision whether you're going to you know, respond or not respond.
0: Now, when it gets to that point where people don't respond when, when, they, when they aren't listening and you're trying to insert a different voice, a different narrative uh, into the conversation for people to act on so that we can have, you know, we're fond of talking about we, we live in a democratic society and we, Make value judgments judgments about other uh, nations that don't meet what we feel re- uh, is is rep- representation of democracy. Yet we have a democracy here, a democracy of thought that is not always uh, that is not always inclusive. or not. It doesn't make space for these different voices. So when you get to the point where people aren't listening, uh, what has been the what is what is the next step?
1: Well, I think, again, going back to sort of talking to our own people first has been really helpful. Um, Sometimes we think we're on the same page uh, with other members of our communities, and it turns out we are not even reading the same book, (laughs) right? (laughs) We're not even in the same library or whatever this, you know, Comparison can continue in mm-hmm. many different scenarios. So I think, for me, it's always going back to, you know, who are we who are we trying to reach? Mm. Are we, we don't have to be sort of uniform in thought, right. but do we have some common goals? Do we have some shared goals? And do we have some shared ideas of how to, you know, approach those goals? We don't even have to solve them, but even how to begin uh, chipping away at the problem. And so I think it's for me. It's always going back. Like, who are my people? Who is the community uh, that we're trying to serve first?
0: You know, going back to uh, to Muslims, uh, even with the Radio Islam family, uh, that's right. And I, I keep and I say Radio Islam family because I want you to understand, right? When when I'm drinking water on air, uh, right? I, I don't I don't step away. I just I just stay right in there, right? Because you know we know each other. Um, but it's a broad. It's a broad. The, the the Muslim family, the Ummah is a, it's it's not a monolith. Monolith. It's it's a huge. It's, it's diverse, uh, and with that diversity comes a lot of different issues, a lot of different concerns. Sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they're very specific. Um, uh, in your uh, position, dealing with all of this diversity, is there a, uh, and then bringing everything that you bring to the table, do you? Are, are you looking to like do you like kind of check off? Okay, we have an organization that's maybe dealing with uh, voter education. We have a, uh, a, a, a an, an effort here that's dealing with uh, immigration advocacy, or and now we have somebody that's doing inner city work. Are you like hyper conscious of of how you're moving along and addressing these areas? And th- and does that does that get kind of jumbled up
1: sometimes? It can be tough. Um, I think what you were saying about, you know, there's so much diversity within the community. Yeah. We are really careful, of course, thinking about the unity and like that there is like one ummah. We are really careful to always talk about American Muslim communities, plural. Mm. right? And we don't, we try not to say like the American Muslim community thinks this or this is what's important to the American Muslim community. And really emphasizing that there, we are made up say of community, communities.
0: Communities yes i don't think i've heard anybody say that
1: yeah that's actually something i have to shout out uh, a buzzfeed reporter hannah Alam, who really emphasizes that in her work and her beat at buzzfeed is the american muslim sort of beat that's what she gets to do every day wow and um, and she is the one who really underscored that for me for the first time and i was like that makes a lot of sense because that helps navigate some of those questions you were asking right yeah we don't have one goal Mm -hmm. um Really, you know, it, different elements of the community are dif- dealing with different things, and that comes to, you know, thinking about what it is. What does it mean to have a Muslim issue? Mm-hmm. And as an, a grantee, a grant a grant making organization that does give grants in the Muslim community, we have to be mindful of what are the Muslim issues. Right. Multiple, um, and it could be if your community is dealing with, um, you know, hunger or housing, or you know are like brothers and sisters returning home from being incarcerated. These are all Muslim issues, Mm -hmm. just as much as, you know, surveillance and immigration and, you know, refugee issues. Mm -hmm. So we are like almost hyper mindful of, you know, how many different issues the communities can hold.
0: Let me ask this. So with regard to the media, right, is there, do you feel like there's a constant uh, Tension that exists between <laughs> that exists between uh, what issues that what issues the media presents as uh, relative to the Muslim community and the issues that you that you're focused on. Do you ever find yourself? You know, it's kind of do you, do you find yourself maybe having to turn off the. Uh, The television sometimes
1: oh my gosh (laughs) if not you know sometimes watching the news especially with young children is worse than like hbo or cinemax right Mm -hmm. um and so definitely uh, and the 24-hour news cycle doesn't help um but i will give one example we had um A project that Pillar supported a few years ago called The Secret Life of Muslims. It was this collection of, yes, short videos about Muslims doing different things, you know, some Muslim-y things and some just, (laughs) you know, skateboarding. And it was nominated for a News and Documentary Emmy. So uh, my colleague, Kashif, our executive director and I went to the News and Documentary Emmys in New York, which was super fun. And, you know, you don't get the opportunity to do that very often. Um, But it's not like the, you know, the, like, primetime Emmys. It's not a red carpet affair. There's not a lot of, you know, it's not very funny or (laughs) particularly entertaining. Because it's really rapid fire. They're going through quickly. They're announcing the nominees. Everyone's on a real, they actually follow the tight timeline. Mm -hmm. And so it was getting, it was going on. It was about three four hours long it was getting a little bit <laughs> it was dragging <laughs> so i started keeping a tally of all of the the nominees who had something to do with muslims in any way it mm-hmm. could be um, about again about surveillance it could be about wars overseas like there was a, there were a lot of um, nominees that had something to do with syria uh, there were a lot of stories uh, about pulse um, the attack in orlando okay. um, so a lot of you know something to any time that muslim a Muslim was a part of a story, good or bad. I was starting to keep a tally. And by the end of the night, um, there were about 40, 45 stories. And I actually have it still on my phone. And I like screenshot it. That had something to do with Muslims. And two of them were either neutral or positive. And the positive was the secret life of Muslims, the one that we um, support, that Pillars supported. And then the other one was about, this is where I say it was neutral. It was about entrapment of muslims Mm. so it was bringing a critical lens to what's happening to muslims but it wasn't actually a positive story and this is supposed to be the best of the best right these are the nominees for you know the most prestigious award in television in news and documentary and this is what we're up against like mostly negative stories about muslims in the news so we again and this is speaking to that mainstream audience so we have such a responsibility to speak to our people first
2: mm-hmm.
1: because if you listen to the news you will believe things about yourself that are you know far from your reality but also like detrimental to your mental health and well-being right. and um, the Institute for Social Policy and understanding mm-hmm. another grain tea of pillars um, in their most recent sort of annual poll that they do, Showed that more than Christians, more than Jews, Muslims believe the bad things that we hear about ourselves in the news, um, almost double the amount of the other groups. And so, when we're thinking about raising children in this climate, I'm always, you know, that's always top of mind for me as a parent, but also just, you know, as a citizen in the world, um, and but also to adults, right? This has an impact on how we navigate the world and how we see ourselves.
2: Mm.
0: You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea of uh, the double consciousness, you know, W. Mm-hmm. E. Du Bois, and uh, and how uh, uh, it was talked about um, on one of the panels. Uh, triple consciousness,
1: right, right. right. Um, I would even add quadruple because yeah. triple was, you know, the being black or non-white, being, mm-hmm. you know, being American, being Muslim, but then as a woman, also, right? Yes, we're constantly yeah second guessing ourselves also right like should yeah. i
0: and the thing is i think as more boxes come along for us to check off uh that invade our, our our conscious space where we find ourselves responding not just not just even in those areas that we've mentioned but you know maybe as as a as a union member right yeah. um as as a as a parent or a person who doesn't have children as uh, it 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 can really become overwhelming where you find yourself having to act in uh, all of these different types of uh, just different awarenesses um, where you, you, could, you could second guess yourself you know very easily um, but with this multiple these multiple layers of consciousness in my opinion uh, I feel like there needs to be a way to pull together um, Pull together some some of the, the this, this this stream of consciousness in a way where you don't feel so overwhelmed. Uh, and when you mentioned talking about the necessity to speak to to our people first, do you think we're in a position? Uh, has anybody started got the ball rolling for that Muslim awards uh, show? Uh, you, <laughs> you know you know in the United States, uh, that's dealing with media. That's dealing with uh, you know film and, and, uh, and documentaries and, and uh, you know podcasts and, and all of mm-hmm. that. Uh, do you think that would be a a benefit where it it, it would, it would kind of lessen the the strain on the on the conscious?
1: I don't there were a few I don't remember all of them, but there are a few awards that exist. See, I missed them. I didn't get invited. <laughs> I didn't either, <laughs> which is why I don't remember <laughs> the specifics, but I think like the Golden Minaret mm. Awards or something like that. I know that the okay, yes. Islamic Scholarship Foundation has an annual competition for film mm. um, where they feature. But yeah, we have a lot more to do in that way. But I think first is really one thing we're excited to do at Pillars is support those creatives as well. And I think that's one reason that A pillars um, grant can be so meaningful to an organization or to an effort because it is a community-based you know award and I is it is it okay now to sort of explain how pillars works and talk a little bit about that because I think that will help give some context yeah yeah so we've been pillars fund has existed formally for about eight years
0: you know what we're at the halfway point all right yes so if we could hold that for just a absolutely. second, absolutely, um, folks. If you are just tuning in, we are talking with Kalia Abiate. She is the director of programs at the Pillars Fund, and uh, when we come back, she's going to tell you all about the fund, right?
1: <laughs> I am.
0: <laughs> How it all happens, right? That's that's important stuff, right? So we're going to take a short, short break. Right. very short break. This is Radio Slime, we're on WCV 1450 AM and we'll be back in just a minute.
2: Hey America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. we got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America on your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant it's on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital.
0: You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call one eight six six no attacks Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
2: I feel like a fish with no water.
0: Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its north side location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling Area Code 872. Eight zero six zero one four one. That's area code eight seven two eight zero six zero one four one, or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are on WCEV, WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, you can keep up with us on social media. Uh, we've got pages We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also check out the podcast. So if you're just tuning in right now, you can check out the, uh, the podcast, most likely tomorrow right wherever you get your podcast, you'll find us at radio islam usa that is at radio islam usa uh family i think i'm coming down with a cold yep i think i am but uh no complaining the show must go on so uh if you are just tuning in we are talking with kalia abiade she is the director of director of programs at the pillars fund and she was just about to explain to us exactly how the Pillars Fund goes about what it does right so i'm going to let you take it away now
1: thanks again so much for having me so yeah i the pillars fund has existed formally for about 8 years mm-hmm. it started off with a handful of american muslim donors who you know were mashallah doing a really good job of supporting you know Different Islamic centers and mosques and Sunday schools, but really recognize this need to support our nonprofit organizations, to support civic leaders who were doing, uh, you know, doing really important and really difficult work. And so that handful of donors grew from about four or five people to about 20 donors who contribute every year and are really dedicated to this idea of collaborative giving. And every year they come together they decide where they want to give their resources, and then we support American Muslim organizations and efforts, or people working in and alongside Muslim communities in the United States. And our founding executive director was current, was at the time working at the McCormick Foundation, another large foundation here in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and was really able to work with the donors to say, here's how you set up a grant making process, here's how we reach out to people, and he really provided sort of the structure for how to make it go. And we, uh, Pillars found itself in rooms with large foundations like the Ford Foundation or Open Societies Foundation, right? These really big players who were trying to figure out how to work with American Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. And so Pillars kept showing up in these spaces, right? As this (laughs) giving circle alongside Ford, or, you know, which has, you know, a massive endowment and gives out millions and millions of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. But because Pillars had that community knowledge that the big foundations didn't, it was an extremely valuable player, and um, everyone sort of looked around like, "Why don't you exist? You know, why don't you exist as a full-time thing? Why don't you have staff?" And I, you know, our founders really saw that there was an opportunity here, not only to continue giving grants to these really important organizations doing really important work, but to really be a critical voice in philanthropy. In media with other creatives and influencers, where you know there was a different kind of access and a different way to approach, um, bring community issues to the fore um, in spaces where there previously hadn't been. So in July of two thousand sixteen, uh, our Founding executive director, Kashif Sheikh, started full-time. He left his work at McCormick, took this on in a single office in a co-working space by himself. Mm -hmm. I joined him that December, uh, five, six months later, and here we are. And it's been, you know, it's been incredible. It's been an incredible journey. The biggest privilege is getting to go across the country and learn from community organizations who are doing really, really Um, difficult but inspiring work Um, all approaching it from different angles you know it just is amazing to see how different communities um, are just existing in the world so the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I was I was talking about not only is it important to support the nonprofit organizations and the lawyers and you know all of these people who are doing sort of this this really crisis you know this critical work in these various crises that the Muslim communities have been dealing with over the last few years but to support like new ideas and this new generation of leaders and what does it look like when we're not constantly putting out fires all of the time (laughs) right (laughs) and how do we support these creatives um, to do the work and go and imagine something much different and so I think you know we were talking about media um, in the earlier part of the segment and talking about you know a lot of times what's happening is people are telling our stories for us and even at Pillars we've supported other people who have been doing work um, that you know people working alongside the Muslim community and I think in recent years we've said you know that work is really important and it's great but what does it look like if we support you know American Muslims who are doing that and if they don't uh, and some of that, we don't want to make the assumption that they don't have the skill, because a lot of us do. Right, a lot of people are already doing really critical work without our support. Right. But if they don't have that skill, then what's our responsibility to ensure that they do? Ensure that they have the networks and the resources to do what they do best, and make sure that their voices are, you know, heard, and not only heard, but are actually influencing decisions that, you know, matter most to us.
0: Now. As far as the, um, the amount of work that is going on, which is, there, there's an amazing amount. I mean, and, and I'm not, not even talking about nationally, right? If we can just look just within the Chicagoland area, in each city as you move around the country, anywhere Muslims are, there, there's, there's engagement. Um, but looking at the broader picture, is there an element of connectivity for me right that's one of the things that I'm, I'm constantly constantly looking at I'm looking at other uh, Muslims that are that are that are in media that are trying to use the, the platform to bring light to our concerns and and the and, and some of the the differences in those concerns um, but when it comes to connectivity do you find that organizations are aware of the work that others are doing? Um, that could possibly be a support to them, um, or do you feel like uh, do you, do you see that organizations are kind of working, you know, on their own, you know, in the, the whole uh, in, in silos? That's that's the right, you know. right.
1: I think there have been a lot of gains in that area to connect people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to shout out our colleagues at the Security and Rights Collaborative, which is another funder based in DC. Okay, they've done an incredible job of bringing people together who are specifically working on. Issues related to national security, um, and you know, against <laughs> some of the national security apparatus that have been you know, really harming members of our community, but there is so much room for improvement, and I think that's something at Pillars that we really take seriously. It's like, how do we bring together a lot of the media makers, mm-hmm. right, into one space? Has that even happened before? Where you know, different, you know, radio hosts and newspaper journalists and bloggers and podcasters and, you know, can really be in a space together and say, okay, what what are our priorities as a profession, right, as a segment within this profession? Mm -hmm. Similarly, there are college professors, right, who can similarly be connected. We've, uh, we supported earlier this year a cohort of folks working on civic engagement and voter engagement. This is a really important year. Um, And while as 501c3 organizations, we can't be partisan, we can definitely get our people out to the polls and make sure that they know what the main issues are. So we are seeing a lot of opportunities to support more sort of gatherings like that. And hopefully they're not just one-off gatherings, right? Um, There's another project we're supporting uh, that's it's called the Muslim power building project and this is kind of one of the way that it's come together is one of my favorite stories to tell because it you know the lead organization or the lead organizers this woman sarah jawade based in los angeles and she works with faith in action which is formerly known as pico and but she's not just doing this by herself she's brought in muslim arc muslim anti-racism collaborative iman inner city muslim action network and empower change and so we've got this geographic diversity happening within that. We've got sort of issue diversity. We've, everyone's coming at it from a different lens. Everyone's playing a different role. And what they're doing is training a cohort of about 25 emerging leaders to do work in their communities. So they're, these leaders are coming from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so they have that support system and that connectivity just by being in the same room and learning a skill together. And then they take those skills to their community and apply it, you know, the ways that they see best fit. But they have this support system now for one another that they can call on each other when they, you know, have issues that other people can help with.
0: Right. And, and awareness of issues that may not necessarily be uh, relative to where they are, but they know they exist and other uh, other leaders, other communities are dealing with them. Exactly. That, that's awesome. Exactly. Now, what's the name of that again?
1: The Muslim Power Building Project.
0: Okay. All right. We'll keep our eyes out uh, yeah. <laughs> for that. For sure. Um, with regard to, um, w- sometimes we don't look at establishment. Um, we don't look at it necessarily in terms of privilege, uh, but every organization, right? You have you have big ones and you have small ones, uh, and I-, I like the the term storefront, right? Uh, because it's it's in the neighborhood, uh, people they have relationships with the neighborhood people know who they are uh, but maybe not maybe not outside of that particular community Um, and they may be be providing services but not they're not aware of how to move beyond where they are as opposed to you know you got larger organizations with a larger footprint that are doing more Um, does the pillars fund also help those organizations, those smaller organizations, um, uh, move on, uh, grow and and give them the uh, the tools or education so that they can uh, increase their capacity?
1: For sure, so we have our annual grant cycle, which is open right now, a little plug. Um, (laughs) Letters of inquiry for that are due on July 31st.
0: What do they say? And
1: on? We, pillarsfund.org. Okay. And we have an info session this Thursday, July twelfth. Um, that's happening online, and you can register on our website for that. Um, so we think it's important to support sort of organizations at different levels of their development, of their life cycle. Mm-hmm. And really, some of what you talked about, that connecting the storefronts with the sort of establishment, quote unquote, is really important. And maybe an organization may not need to exist outside of the store. Maybe its ser- its purpose is best served as a storefront because you're reaching mm-hmm. the people directly. Maybe there doesn't, not everyone needs to grow, right? We need, we have a lot of, Needs that need to be met, but it, you know we were really mindful that sometimes an organization is at its right size, right. and that's fine. And it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to. You know, it doesn't have to grow. Um, but of course, we know that we always have fewer resources than what is actually needed (laughs) to address certain (laughs) issues so we're always in you know thinking about growth and what that looks like of course so yes outside of our annual grant cycle which those grants range from about 10 to 50 thousand dollars we also have opportunities for training We do a lot of what we call capacity building, which can sound really jargony, but it just, you know, for some organization that might mean board development. You know, they have a dedicated board, but they need some skills to sort of refine, to be a really functional and supportive board. Um, For other organizations, that might mean communications. They need a better social media and media game plan, or just how to talk with their own constituents. Um, It could be staff development. It could be coaching for a new executive director. So whatever that looks like for an organization, we are always uh, sort of keeping an eye on opportunities to support in those ways. And we have to build that out as well, because as I mentioned, our support comes from donors and goes back into the grant. So we are constantly in resource generation mode also. So sometimes Mm -hmm. that's not money, sometimes that's partnering with an organization that provides those services as well.
0: That's interesting, um, the point you make, that sometimes an organization is at the right size. It does not need to, to go beyond that, but I think uh, I shouldn't say. But I think there's an allure for people to um, the, the, to, to to try to just keep growing, keep mm-hmm. growing, keep growing, and possibly lose sight of of their mission. Right. So um, I imagine that that's also there's a, a, a consultative process that goes yes. on where you're telling folks, okay, you know, you got to look and see. What are you really trying to do? Exactly.
1: Right. I think the question that I have often. Who's call, Who's calling? Is call why is right? <laughs> <laughs> so who is on the phone right now? Um, but a question. So I mentioned the limited resources, and you know, as fortunate as I feel to be in a position where we're giving out resources, we it does you know have an end, right? <laughs> it's yeah. not limitless. So one thing we talk about a lot with um, grant seekers and with other people in the network is, you know, how to make whatever you're doing, like have an impact beyond that space. So if you do have a storefront, you know, what are some lessons that other people can learn from what you're doing? How do we sort of, you know, imagine like what are the broader implications of the work that you're doing? It's really important in that neighborhood. But are there things that other people can take from that? And one, um, I feel like I'm taking everyone else's stories, but Angelique Power (laughs) at the Field Foundation shares often the parable of the babies in the river and I'm not sure if you're familiar no, with no, it I don't think so. but she's talking about some man being on the bank of a river and all these babies keep coming down and so they're he's trying to collect them as they're coming down the river and just you know left and right just grabbing all the babies and saving all the babies from the river but no one is taking the time to go see where you know where the babies are coming from mm-hmm. like who's stopping this flow of babies into the river. Right. And so when we're doing what we would call direct service, whether that's a clinic or something that's just, you know, directly um, in the community providing something immediate, what are sort of the policy changes that can happen to make that issue not an issue, right? If it's a food bank, right, are you just, giving out food, which is really a blessing, you know, and and not something that should be minimized. But is there also a plan or a part of the team or volunteers who can also look at food policy to ensure that fewer people need to seek that kind of assistance? Same with housing and, you know, and so on. So having an advocacy lens, even if you don't have staff to take on the policy, but just understanding what are the structural issues at play that are causing this problem that we're trying to solve. I think that's something we talk a lot with our grantees and our grant seekers about. It's not just about that service component, which is very important, but how do we stop it? You know, how do we stop those babies from coming down the river in the first place?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and that's, that's one of the things that I think folks can find overwhelming is in trying to, being that, being that man at the bank of the river, just Con, you know, constantly pulling, pulling, you know, pulling babies out.
1: It's a horrible, horrible image. Like I wish yeah. I had another <laughs> example to give. Yeah,
0: but see, that's important, though, right? Because yeah. I mean, it, it could be anything else. You might, yeah, I'm just let it keep going, right? Right. Watermelon, You gotta, gotta a baby, right? Right. It's an emergency. So, but with. Um, when we look at some of the uh, efforts that are being led or influenced uh, where, where Muslims are involved, uh, whether they be around, ho- ho- around um, housing or uh, hunger or mass incarceration, um, there's also this other side where you realize that a lot of these people are volunteers. And, yeah. and being volunteers, there's a, there's a crunch on, on time Yep. uh to be able to seek out uh, sometimes to get that education what are some of the things that uh or are there any 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 recommendations that you give to those people to be able to kind of take back some of that time so that they can uh, so they can in, in, increase or be more effective in their uh, in their efforts
1: yeah oh it's really really tough I think so many people Even the people who are like paid organizers are probably well underpaid, right, for the most part. Um, So in terms of our, bringing it again back to sort of our grant making, the way that we think about the way that we fund, uh, we have three like main categories. The first is rights. Um, So, thinking about what are those things, you know, what do we need to do to get your foot off my neck, right? Like the most (laughs) immediate things. And we didn't intend for this to be sort of this hierarchy of needs, but I think you can see how this plays out. Mm -hmm. So, first, like just getting rid of these like immediate problems. And they can be structural, they can be immediate. And then the second category of funding is wellness. And that really doesn't just mean, again, clinics or, you know, that direct service, which again, is important. But what does it look like if we're a healthy and whole community mentally, spiritually, mm-hmm. right? And really thinking about what does that mean? What does that even look like, <laughs> right? What is, what is the trauma that's happened over generations in this country to Muslims in this country? And mo- more immediately within the last 15, 16 years, like what has all this trauma built up within us, And how can we start to chip away at it? Right. And then the third category is understanding. So projects that help us have a better understanding of our own community. For example, that there has never been a United States without Muslims, right? That's something that we need to do a lot of educating about Absolutely. um, how we see ourselves, but also how the rest of the world or the rest of the country sees us. So these projects that are around research or media, things that are a little bit more external facing. And I mentioned that because the wellness piece to me is so very important for our volunteers for our paid staff people thinking about, okay, let's be realistic. Like let's have big hopes and dreams and imaginations. Mm-hmm. But let's also, you know, realize that this took centuries yeah. Yeah. to get to where we are. Yeah, it wasn't overnight. Right. And you know, having some realistic goals even within our lifetime, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. So just doing what you can do and not taking on the whole burden individually and making sure that you are, that your cup is full, right? So that you can continue to share. Because if you're depleted, then you're useless to everybody and then everyone is scrambling trying to figure out, again, how to go get those babies because right. our baby catcher like wore himself out.
0: <laughs> I, think that, I think that goes back to the idea of connectivity and being mm-hmm. aware that it is not a burden uh, or a struggle that one person or one organization is engaged in or caring on their own Mm -hmm. Uh, and to know that there are other people that that you have allies i think that that allows people to say okay you know what maybe i can step back for a day and you know right (laughs) so so i can i can recharge uh and and, or so i can find out who's who's running these babies down uh down the river Right. right so yeah i think um yeah, I definitely feel like that's, that's one of the things that, that I push, and I'm really just I'm glad to hear um, uh, that, that that is something, not that I'm surprised, but I'm glad to hear that that's something that you all are um, uh, aware of and, and pushing, you Thank know, this you. connectivity and, and awareness. We're trying. Yeah, yeah. We're
1: definitely trying.
0: So now where, um, once again, I know you said July 12th, there's an online um, info session? Yes. Now, uh, do they just go to, people go to uh, pillarsfund.org? They,
1: they can go to pillarsfund.org or they can find us on Twitter, okay. Pillars Fund, uh, Pillars underscore fund, um, <laughs> or Instagram, um, which is at Pillars Fund or Facebook.
0: Yeah. Okay. And grant, on grant cycle is open? Grant cycle
1: is open. So we have, we're taking letters of inquiry, which is just sort of an introduction about, you know, what it is that you're doing and why and who you are. Um, that's due on July thirty first, and then that online system will shut down at eleven fifty nine p.m. Central, mm. and and then that's it for this year. None so, of that last
0: minute. Unfortunately,
1: next day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, last year we got more than two hundred letters of inquiry.
0: Wow!
1: And we um, after that we invite full proposals from a handful of those, and then we grant. So we got down to about 20 grants that we gave out last year from more than 200 applicants. So it is, you know, there's so much great work being done. It's very, very competitive. Yeah. Um, and we wish we could fund it all most of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but we're, you know, we're working on it. And again, like I said, there are other ways to sort of plug into the work outside of the big, big grants as well.
0: I don't want to take us too far off. Right. Cause we're kind of wrapping up a little bit. Yeah. Um, is it easier to fund efforts that are already in process as opposed to one that somebody says, hey, I have this great idea, all, all I need is some money.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, everybody always needs some money, yeah. right? And so if that's the only gap, you're like, look, I've got this amazing group of volunteers, and we're already doing this amazing work. And I think you know, there's one organization that comes to mind that is a perfect example of this they built out their community and their network and i don't necessarily want everyone to sort of burn themselves out before they get funding but right. they saw a need in the community and they said you know what we're going to address this need they did it they grew their sort of community across you know they used the power of social media mm-hmm. i'm this is muslim arc muslim anti racism oh, yeah. collaborative they had all of these great online forums and socials ways that people felt connected and they really were able to demonstrate sort of the need for the work that they did, the demand for the work that they did. It wasn't just, it was an idea, but it was in response to a real demand uh, from the community. And each event that they had, they had more and more participants. And then they said, you know, we need some money, because this is not (laughs) sustainable, right? (laughs) We can't, we're doing this for free. And so um, thankfully, alhamdulillah, Pillars was one of the early grant maker, grants um, that they got, along with some other very meaningful grants. As we said, hey, this is valuable work, yeah. um, and it really does have like this ripple effect, you know, throughout the community. Especially when a you know when a donor or when a grant maker or when a big organization can say, hey, we need to look at, you know, racism, for example, mm-hmm. in the Muslim community. Right, right. This is important for us. It's you know, it says a lot. It it really sends a message.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Sister Kalia, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank to you. To come in uh radio Sun family for those of you who are uh looking to uh expand your capacity those who are providing services who are advocating who are trying to get the foot off of the neck um we hope that you have paid attention i'll tell you once again pillarsfund.org there will be an informational session july 12th right and uh and find them on social media and and all that all that good stuff so um we have come to the close of another hour uh it always goes by very quickly so at this point we want to go ahead and thank our engineers over at wcev well first thank you again thanks for coming thank you for having me <laughs> uh we're going to go ahead and thank our engineers over at wcev thanks for making sure we come through loud and clear um, I am your host, producer, and engineer, Tariq Al-Ami. our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid, and we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation, even though everything we said was good. Alright? Say that again. Okay, folks, we're gonna leave you now as we greeted you. assalamu alaikum, may the peace that only God can give be upon you.